So some marketing genius somewhere said, perception is reality. How many of you agree perception is reality? Nobody agrees. That's good. <laughs> because perception is not reality. Right? I mean, the dictionary tells us this much. If you look, at, look these words up in the dictionary, perception is defined as a view, an opinion, an assessment, and an impression, a, a read on or a take on something. Reality is defined as an actuality, a truth, a certainty, a verity, a fact. A view, an opinion, or an assessment can be the polar opposite of the actual truth of a matter. The 16th century, in the 16th century, everyone believed that the earth was the center of the solar, solar system, right? You guys all know this, right? Everyone believed that. It was unquestioned. And if you didn't believe it, just go outside and watch the sun come up in the east and go down in the west. Are you convinced? Of course you're convinced. The sun is rotating the earth, right? Perception. It was wrong. Who figured out it was wrong? Let's see if any of you scholars can... Copernicus. Copernicus figured it out. That it was wrong. That the earth was actually rotating around the sun. Everybody was wrong. Imagine that. Perception is not reality. You ever notice how human beings, we have this tendency to need to run with the herd. You guys know this? You feel this in yourself. If you're honest, you feel this in yourself. I just want to be like everyone else. I just want to do what everyone else does. I want to go where they go. I want to say what they say. I want to listen to the music they listen to. It's this herd mentality. It's almost like as a human being, we can't help ourselves. Right? We just want to run with the herd. I know I've used this illustration before, but it's one of my favorites, so I'm going to use it again. I've told you about lemmings, right? You know about the lemmings. How many of you know about lemmings? Kate, tell us about lemmings. <laughs> no, no pressure. We were laughing because this was actually the theme of our yesterday, is if you follow everyone around, then you're like a lemming, because you just follow the herd, you don't look, you don't think, you know. That's right. That's right. No pressure, but good job. <laughs> but good job. Um, yeah, every three or four years, these, these are little furry rodent things, and they live in Scandinavia, and every three or four years, when the food supply becomes, be, starts to become scarce, they just up monolith, in a, one monolithic herd, and they leave, and they just go. The thing is, with, with these lemmings is, when they hit a body of water, they don't stop, even if it's the ocean. They just keep going. They just jump in. And of course, these little furry rats can, you know, they can swim for a little while, but after a while, they, they all drown. Humanity is almost exactly like this. As long as the herd's going that way, we uncritically, many, many times, uncritically, we just go with them. You know, no one ever stops to ask the question. Rarely do people in this day and age, stop and ask the question, is it wise to go that way? Is it good to go that way? When I was in seminary, my professor, one of my professors, he had a, a picture that was quite arresting. You, you couldn't miss it. It was right behind his desk. And as far as you could see, there was just a, a line of people and they were just marching. They were just marching, two abreast. 
And they were just marching. And you come down to the end, and they're just marching over the cliff. They never look down. They're just watching the person in front of them, and they just march over into the abyss. It was an arresting picture. This is humanity. This is much of humanity. We love to run with the herd. In many ways, humanity is just like those lemmings. It's the Copernicus thing. It's the lemming syndrome. But following the herd, beloved, can be catastrophic. Following the herd can be catastrophic. We know what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Paul says, Mankind has exchanged the truth of God for what? Someone tell me. A lie. The herd is believing a lie. The herd is chasing a lie. The herd is chasing bubbles that burst. Satan has sowed perception and it is not reality, beloved. Satan is the consummate marketing genius. He's been selling perception from day one. And he's got much of humanity chasing after him. Adam and Eve exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Satan sold them on the lie that that God wasn't good. God was holding out on them. That if He really loved them, if He was really a good God, He'd give them the fruit of the tree. Right? They believed. They ate. The rest is history. Satan told Adam and Eve, it's not all about God. It's all about you. Right? And isn't that what the the modern culture believes? I mean, most of the modern culture, they give God little or no consideration at all. Even many people who call themselves Christians, they only tip their hat to God on Sunday. But the truth of the matter is, beloved, we were made by Him and for Him. Do you live like that? You know, that's one of my favorite verses. We are made by Jesus Christ for Jesus Christ. And if Satan's got you chasing something else, it's a lie, beloved. You should be pursuing Christ above all else. He is your preeminent passion, your preeminent pursuit. And if Satan's got you chasing something else, I'll use an old word that's not used much in the church anymore. You need to repent. You need to repent. (coughs) Satan has sold you perception. And it is a lie. It is a lie. There's a great book. I've mentioned it to you several times. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. and We know that the senior demon there is, is counseling the junior demon on how to keep his human being from becoming a patient. And in one of his letters, Screwtape writes this, We've got the humans completely fogged about reality. They don't know if they're coming or going. We've got them totally fogged. And I loved when I read that. I thought, man, that's right. Isn't much of the world just chasing Chasing the things of the world. Chasing the things of the world. Most of mankind is in a stupor. They're confused. They're dazed. They're befuddled. Satan is the consummate marketing genius. He's getting most of mankind to squander their one very, very, very short life on things that do not matter. Things that do not matter at all. As I said earlier, on bubbles 
that bursts. But it's not that way for us, right, beloved? It's not that way for us. We don't chase perception. We stand on what? The truth. We have God's Word. It's the truth. We don't worry about perception. We deal in reality. His name is Jesus Christ. We're not that way. We're not like the world. We don't squander our lives chasing things that don't matter. We give our lives to the Lord. We give our lives to honor Christ, to love Christ, to obey Christ, to magnify Christ. That's why we're here. I tell you almost every Sunday, that's the only reason you've been left on the planet. is to honor Jesus Christ in your life and to magnify Him in your life. To make Him famous in the world. That's why you're here. That's why you're here, beloved. So tonight as we finish our review of 1 John, and I, I've really loved it. Haven't you loved 1 John? It's just, it's so simple. There are no ambiguities in the book. You can't, you can't misunderstand John unless you have a PhD and you want to misunderstand John. It's so clear about what a Christian really is. It's about someone who, who prays a prayer and attends church and does a sacrament and did some ordinances, right? Is that what's in 1 John? That's what we learn in 1 John. That to be a Christian is to be a good little religious boy or girl, right? Is that what we saw in 1 John? What does God actually say in 1 John? My people, they love me. They believe me. They obey me. Basta. That's it. You don't see any religious stuff in 1 John. God says... My people love me. They believe me. They, they obey me. And as we've seen, one of the, the, the principal points in 1 John is that we love the body of Christ. That's, that's one of the principal points. One of the ways that we love Jesus and obey Jesus is by serving the body of Christ. We serve the body of Christ. You know, this is, this is why I, I pastor an international church. So, Internationals that are traveling and they're out of pocket, they're out of their own culture, their own English-speaking culture, but they can come and be a part of the body of Christ. Beloved, it's important. This is non-negotiable with God. We're to be a part of the body of Christ. We're to be using our gifts in the body of Christ. We're to be bringing an offering to Jesus in the body of Christ. I run into so many internationals, it's, it's uh, well, it's, it's conditional. It's like, well, if, if I can find a place or if it's convenient or if it's, you know, this or if it's that. I always say the same thing. No. It's, if God's given you a place to come worship, a place that you can get to, beloved, you need to get to that body. And you need to worship the Lord. It's not about religion. It's not about that at all. We've been talking a lot about that. The hallmarks of true conversion. That's what 1 John is about. If you want to know you're a Christian, don't go talk to the pastor or the, or the priest or anybody else. Just read this. If you look like this, if you look like 1 John, you're a Christian. If you don't, you have every reason to question whether you're a believer or not. If your life doesn't look like 1 John, if you don't love the Lord, if you're not obeying the Lord, and if you're not loving His body.
We stand on truth. We're not deceived by perception. We don't do the limbing thing. We don't run with the herd. We don't waste our lives pursuing bubbles that burst. We are sold out to the whole Hebrew 11 thing. We are strangers and exiles. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but is that, you know, is that the signature of your life? Are you an alien and an exile? Simply on your way home. That's all this is about. I'm on my way home. Yes, we know God gives us subordinate pleasures and joys. Praise the Lord. He's a good and gracious God. But preeminently, I'm on my way home. And on my way, I will live in honor. I'll live for the Lord and honor Him. We don't, we don't march with the herd. We walk with God. And as John closes this, this small little letter, he gives us a flurry of, of, of certainties. Things that we're supposed to know. What did we talk about last week? God wants us to know we're Christians. Why? So we can check that, that religious box, that theological box, that, that, that box of orthodoxy, that, so we can have uh, assurance of our salvation. Is, is that the preeminent reason? What did we talk about last week? Does anybody remember? God wants us to know we're saved. 1 John 5.13 Reason being that you might live like you are. Right? <laughs> that you go out in the world and live like you are. That all the people in your orbit will know that you belong to Jesus Christ. God says, My children, they're out of the fog. They don't live by perception. They know Me. They have eternal life as we talked about last week, verse 13. In a couple of verses we, don't, we won't take the time to cover. But if you notice, because I, the reason I didn't cover verses 14 and 15, I preached on prayer about five or six weeks ago and I just didn't, wanna, I just, I didn't feel like it was right to, to, to preach about prayer again. But here it is. We know God hears us. And we know He answers us. Listen, beloved, if you have questions about prayer, these two verses right here, 1 John 5, 14, 15, they, they govern all other passages with respect to prayer. We know that we have what we ask. If what? What's the key? If this is God's will. And we're like Jesus. We're like Jesus in the garden. Not my will, but what? Yours, great God. You know, I've often wondered... Why would anyone pray anything other than that? Do you want something other than God's will? Of course not. Beloved, this is mature prayer. I just, I just didn't take the time to cover that. If you have questions about that, please come and talk with me about prayer. But then we see verse 18. Now verse 16 is, is, a, is a challenging verse. If you have questions about that, come talk to me. There's an easy, there's an easy uh, explanation to verse 16. A lot of people stumble over it, but I don't want to get distracted with it tonight. Verse 18. Here's a certainty that we, you know, it's not about perception. We know that no one born of God sins. This is what the Lord is saying to us. Now, I feel compelled to, to recover some ground here that we've been talking about over and over in 1 John. Is John teaching sinless perfection? If, if you don't read 1 John with a good systematic, if you don't know uh, other parts of the Bible, you would think, you know, if you read it superficially, you would think John's teaching sinless perfection. We understand John is not. God is not teaching sinless perfection. We understand that. 
This would not be the book of absolute assurance of salvation. It would be the book of absolute assurance of damnation. If John was teaching that the Christian arrives at a state of sinless perfection. We simply don't do that. That's not biblical. If we understand our Bibles, we understand that. So I just want to make sure you don't miss that point. And, and one reason we know from the very book here in 1 John is over in chapter, chapter 1, verse 8. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, we make God a liar and His Word is not in us. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. He is our propitiation for our sins. So John is not saying we are sinless. He's not saying that, beloved. So we need to make sure that we understand it. But he's saying we do have the power not to sin. We are different from the world. We have the power not to sin. Amen? That's what the Bible teaches. We're no longer bound to the slave master of sin. We're not sinless, but we are no longer slaves to sin. This is what John is saying to us. You remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 6? We are freed from sin and enslaved to God. Praise the Lord. While you were slaves to sin, you became, here it is, here it is, you became obedient from the heart. There it is right there. My heart longs to honor the Lord and worship the Lord in my obedience. Again, none of us do it perfectly. But it is the, 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 the drive of our life. John is not teaching perfection. He's teaching direction. The direction of our life is toward God. And we're putting down sin progressively. We're cooperating with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. So I want to make sure that we understand the unbroken pattern of sin in our life is broken. We are no longer slaves to it. We have an appetite. We have an appetite for God. We have a taste for God. And we're on our way. We're on our way toward Him. Last part of verse 18, here are two more certainties for the genuine Christian. We know that He, that's Jesus Christ, who was born of God, keeps Him, the believer. He keeps us. What an awesome verse. We also know that the evil one does not touch Him, that being the believer. Nine times, you may know this, nine times in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I'll not lose one of my children. Not one. That's a beautiful, that's an awesome thing. I preached the Gospel of John when I first got here. And I kept seeing it. I didn't realize it until I preached through the book nine times. Jesus says, I'll not lose one of them. My Father has given me these people and I'll not lose any of them. You know, sometimes people ask me questions about... How can you have eternal security? Well, that's one way. There are many doctrinal answers to that question, but one way is that we are a gift from the Father to the Son. The Son is never going to lose one of us. He's never going to lose one of us. Verse 18, He, Jesus Christ, who is born of God, keeps us. He keeps us. You know the great rhetorical question in Romans chapter 8, Who will separate us from the love of God? Who? Someone tell me. Who? Nobody. No one can separate us from 
the love of God. Satan is formidable among angels and men, but he cannot separate us from God. He can't do it. It's impossible. He cannot do it. I love that verse, Jude 24. God is able to keep His people. God is able to keep His people, and He does. Beloved, at the end of the day, my assurance is not in myself, and it's not in my performance. It's not in my religion. It's not, it's not in my church attendance. It's not in my preaching. It's not in anything but Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ saves His people to the uttermost. And we can rest and rejoice in that fact. And beloved, you're supposed to be living that fact with great joy and great boldness and great courage. My God has saved me. I don't run with the lemmings anymore. I'm not in the herd anymore. I don't follow lies anymore. I don't chase bubbles anymore that burst. I'm walking with the living God. Beloved, your, your life should be giving off that aroma. That's what it means to be a Christian. Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, how does it go? I forgot. How does it go, Keith? Who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that awesome? I hope you remind yourself of that often. I hope you remind yourself. I hope you meditate deeply on that. I love how the message paraphrases 1 John 5.18. I love how Eugene Peterson says it. He says, the God begotten are the God protected. Don't you love it? The God begotten are the God protected. Verse 19, two more certainties for the God begotten. Two more certainties. We know that we are of God. We don't belong here anymore. We are aliens and exiles. We're on our way out of here. In fact, we're hard-pressed. We're ready to go. As Paul says, I'm hard-pressed. It'd be very much better to be with Jesus. We understand that. If we're born again, we get that. We don't have any hesitancy to say that. If we have some hesitancy to say that, I would contend that you've not thought deeply about who He is and what He's done. It's not to fully understand the sheer euphoria of standing in the presence of the living God. What that will be like. <laughs> for a billion eternities. What that will be like for a billion eternities. And the other certainty that we have, verse 19, look at it. We know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What a stunning statement. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. God has done for us in the spiritual realm what Copernicus did for science in the physical realm. He's exploded the perception He's exploded the perception that, that we're just innocent men and women groping to find God. Beloved, Satan, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we have rebelled. We talked about it last week. We, gave, we handed over dominion to this earth. We had dominion. Our forebears had dominion but we forfeited dominion to the evil one. You remember what Jesus calls Satan in John chapter 8? He's the father of lies. He's still lying. 
And men are still believing. Satan deals in perception. That pornography will give you satisfaction. If I could just get that right career bump, it'll give me satisfaction. That premarital sexual encounter, it'll give me satisfaction. If I could just exert more power, it would give me satisfaction. If I could just have that affair, I know, it would give me satisfaction. If I could just have a bigger house and a faster car, it'll give me satisfaction. Man, he's got a million of them. <laughs> he's got a million lies. Just like that. And some of you know they're lies. You've tried them. <coughs> Their lies. There is no satisfaction for the human heart apart from being in relationship with the living God. If you look at the original language here, if you look in the the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The original language evokes the image of the world lies in the lap. It lies in the lap of Satan. It lies in the embrace. The embrace of Satan. The Bible says this a lot of different ways. Let me just give you a few. Galatians 1.4 calls this age the present evil age. Ephesians 5.16 calls these days the days of evil. Colossians 1.13 calls the world the dominion of darkness. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says Satan is the little g God of this age. Ephesians 2.2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. John 12.31 calls Satan the ruler of this world. Jesus said that three times in the Gospel of John. Satan is the ruler of this world. Do you believe it? This is God's worldview. Do you have the same worldview? Or do you see the world as benign? Beloved, the world is not benign. Satan is at work. He is the little g-god of this world. We're supposed to understand this. This is supposed to be factored into our worldview. We understand that God is sovereign over Satan. I've said it many times to you. Satan is but a dog on a leash with respect to God. But this is, this is incredible what the Scriptures say to us with respect to Satan's power in this world. I pray that this is not ho-hum to you. So what? You know, people come and they listen to the Word of God being preached. And, so what? So what? It matters. It matters. You know, beloved, what the Bible is saying to us is Satan is the God of business. Does that mean we don't do business? No. We're the, we're, we're the light in the business, right? <laughs> but Satan is the God of commerce and business and industry. He's the God of politics. He's the God of media. He's the God of education. He's the God of art and sport and entertainment and fashion. And of course, He's the God of dead and false religion, even pseudo-Christianity. He's the little g-God of this world. I don't think many Christians think about this. I don't think they take it seriously. I think if we took it seriously, we'd be a lot more circumspect about how we interact 
with the world and where we give our allegiance in the world. We're not supposed to... I don't think the Lord has called us to, 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 be, to be monks and to live in a monastery. That's not what I'm saying. But you are to be what in the world? Someone tell me. Does anybody know what you're supposed to be in the world? What did Jesus say? You're supposed to be the salt and the light. And of course the world's going to hate you. We talked about this verse several weeks ago. Just as it hated Jesus. The world hates us because we're not of the world. We belong to the Lord. It's so important, beloved, that you and I understand that this is part of our worldview. It's important that we understand that Satan is not a little guy with a red suit and two horns and a pitchfork. He's sitting in the halls of government. He's head of all false religion. He's in charge at the university. He's certainly in charge of the media. You're supposed to know that. And you're supposed to be discerning about it. So let me stop and ask you, is that how you see the world? Is that your worldview? Do you believe what God says about the world? If you don't, Satan will seduce you. <laughs> Just mark it down. If you don't believe the world is as God says it is, Satan will. He will seduce you. You and your children. I think far too often we get caught up in perception. But beloved, this is reality. This is reality. He is the ruler of this fallen system that is hostile toward God. The world that you and I live in. He is the consummate Pied Piper and humanity blindly follows. God is, un is unambiguous about this. I think we've talked about this verse not too long ago. James 4.4, 4, you know the famous text. Friendship with the world is what? Someone tell me. It's a good thing. What does God say? It's hostility. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. That's pretty strong. These are not my words. These are the words of God. Whoever wishes to make himself a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. Beloved, are you out in the world making yourself an enemy of God? Or are you the light and the salt in the world? That's the only reason we're here. To be salt and light. That's it. Salt and light. We talked about it in 1 John 2, verse 15 and 16. Do not love this world nor the things in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It is from the world. Makes me think of that great illustration in uh, Pilgrim's Progress. You remember in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian had to walk through Vanity Fair, just a, a metaphor for the world. And as he walked through Vanity Fair, there were countless things that he could sell his soul for. And there's this great list in, in that book. Let me just read them to you real quick. Things we can sell our soul for at Vanity Fair. 
Find houses, lands, stocks, bonds, fashionable clothing, jewelry, cosmetics, beauty, gold, silver, fame, fortune, reputations, virtue, honor, popularity, positions, titles, degrees, games, plays, contests, chance, chances, votes, elections, schemes, comics, pleasures, lusts, illicit sex, prostitutes, husbands, wives, children, lives, uh, bodies, blood, and the last one is fashionable religion. All these things can steal. All these things, beloved, can steal your soul. And Satan's merchants were crying out to Christian as he passed through Vanity Fair, What will you buy from me today? What will you buy from me today? So let me ask you, friend, are you enamored with the things of the world? Are you a friend of the world? If you, if you look at that text there and James 4 that I mentioned earlier, God even uses a strong God uses a stronger word. He, he, he calls it adultery. He says, You adulteresses, that you would run after the world. Very strong language from the Lord. Let me ask you self examination. Do you have more passion for something in this world than you do for God? Be honest with yourself. Do you have more passion for something in this world than you have for God? Do you derive more satisfaction and pleasure from something in this world than you derive from God? Beloved, if that's true of you, your soul is in peril. You are in serious trouble with your Creator. If that's true of you. I don't care how many religious things you did. Where is your heart? What does God say? He doesn't go for it when we just love Him with our lips and our hearts are far from Him. It's either real or it's not with God. You can't fool Him. You can fool me. I can fool you. But nobody can fool Him. It's always, he's always looking into our hearts. God says, My people are not seduced. We do not operate in perception. We stand on the truth. And we reject Satan's lies. Verse 20. Five more certainty, certainties here. And we know that the Son of God has come. That's one. He has given us understanding. Two. In order that we might know Him. Three. Who is the truth? And we are uh, in Him. Who is the truth? Four. In His Son Jesus Christ. This is true God. This is the true God and eternal life. Five more certainties for us. Jesus has come. He is God. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. 1 John 5, 7-11. through 11. Not only has God come, He's left us credible evidence that He's come. If you don't know that text, go study it. It's a great text. He's, let, he's given us three witnesses that He's come. How many times does the word truth appear in verse 20? Three times. We don't fall prey to the lies and seductions of Satan. We do not deal in perceptions. We don't think. We don't postulate. We don't theorize. We know. We understand. And we live accordingly. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving. And happily, 2 Corinthians 4.6 tells us that God has shown forth in the heart to give light to those to, to the knowledge, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ to the Christian. Satan is actively seeking to blind 
the unbeliever's mind. Verse 21, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. I remember when I first read this, I thought, this is a strange way to end the book. But if you reflect on it, you realize it's the perfect way to end the book. What is an idol in a biblical sense? Someone, can you define it for me? If you look up in the dictionary, you know the definition. It simply says, false, a false god. An idol is a god substitute. It's anything you love more than Him. It's anything you pursue more than Him. It's anything you desire more than Him. It's anything that you find more pleasure in than Him. It's a god substitute. It is an idol. All those things that I, I mentioned to you from Vanity Fair, it could be money, career, uh, illicit sex, spouse. Uh, it can be a spouse. It can be kids. It can be religion. It can be any number of things that inflames our affections to a greater degree than God Himself. So verse 21 is a, is a perfect close to the book. The whole book is about what real Christianity looks like. True Christianity looks like a man or a woman who's hopelessly in love with God. Oh, and they live like it. That's it. That's why it's a perfect verse. So guard yourselves from false gods. Guard yourselves from giving your affections to anything less than God. Your preeminent affections. God says, My children do not give their hearts to idols. God says, My children guard their affections. God says, My children love me above all that the world has to offer. And then they live like it. So I'm going to summarize the book real quickly for you just as we look at chapter 5. You can follow through with me if you'd like. Just very quickly. It's all right here in these last few verses. God tells us what a real Christian looks like, verses 1-3. through three. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, verse 1. We love God and we observe and keep His commandments, verse 2 and 3. We love the brethren, referred to as the, the children of God in verse 2 and the child born of Him in verse 1. We've talked about several times, verses 4 and 5, that we are overcomers. We overcome the world. We overcome the lies of the ruler of this world. By faith we overcome. We are Nike. We are Nike. We do the Word. As I said to you just a moment ago, God says, not only did I come, verse 6, I've given reliable and irrefutable witness that I've come, verses 7-10. through 10. And I've given you life, eternal life, God-sized life, verses 11-12. through 12. And in the last nine verses of chapter 5, God reminds us that the Christian lives reality, lives by reality, not by perception. God says, I want you to know, verse 13, you have life. God says, I want you to know that I hear and I answer your prayers in accordance with my will, which is always the best. Verses 14 and 15. God says, you are born again and you are delivered from the power of sin. Verse 18. God says, I am holding you and the evil one cannot touch you. Verse 18. God says, you are mine. Verse 19, God says that the father of lies is the little G-God of this world. Verse 19, and God says that I've come for you 
and you are secure in me forever. Verse 20. Beloved, we're no longer deceived by perception. We live by reality. Amen? 2 Corinthians 4.18 We look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We don't do the limbing thing anymore. We walk with the living God. He's called us out of the fog. We no longer chase bubbles that burst. We've met reality. We know reality. We love reality. His name is Jesus Christ. So God gave us the book of 1 John for one preeminent reason. He wants you to know you belong to Him. He wants you to know that. And maybe some of you need to study 1 John a little more. If you have questions, please don't hesitate to ask. You know, Because if you come to me and ask me, this is always my answer. If you come to me and say, Jim, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I did something when I was eight years old, but I, I don't know. I would say, go read 1 John. Tell me if you look like 1 John. I'm not going to say, did you pray the magic prayer? Did you do the magic ordinance? Are you a member of a church? I'm not going to say that. That's not what God says. I'm going to say, do you look like 1 John? And come, Go read 1 John and you come talk to me. And then we, 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 we can talk on God's terms. <laughs> we won't talk on man's terms. We talk on God, God's terms. So beloved, God wants you to know that you are His, that you might live like you are His. So that's the exhortation tonight. Go, live like you're His every day for the rest of your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for this great book. What a great gift to us. You haven't left us groping in the dark. You've given us the truth. And You've challenged us to not only believe the truth, but to live the truth. So Lord, I thank You for the challenge. I personally love the challenge. I thank You that You've required that we examine ourselves, examine our lives. Our Christianity is not in some prayer we prayed 20 years ago. Or in some ordinance we did. Or some sacrament we keep. If it's real, it'll be in our lives. It'll be spilling out in our lives. We'll be loving You. We'll be obeying You. We'll be believing You. And we'll be loving Your body. Thank You, Lord. It's so simple. It's so simple. We thank You, Lord. I pray that each one of us in here would give ourselves wholly over, utterly and completely over to these realities. That we would love and worship You and magnify You in our obedience out in the world. And we would love and worship and magnify You in, in the church as we love and serve the body of Christ and as we use our gift in the body of Christ. 
We want to be those kinds of men and women, Lord. We thank You, Father. Thank You for Your Word. We give all praise and glory and honor to the name of Jesus. Amen.